There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, Avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil, and then it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back, and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends, and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why, when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who 
comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus's power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. There you go. The whole beginning all the way to Jesus in five minutes. Uh, It's a lot, especially if what you just uh, listened to is brand new to you. You're like, but I just want you to know that all the details are in this part of the Bible. That that you just, that was, it's all there. It's not not just made up, it's all there. If you've ever read the Bible, especially the first part of it, it gets rather intense and so intense and sometimes it seems random and specific then and then rules and you're like, ah, what's going on? That's what it's all about. And now we get to Jesus. Perhaps Jesus for you is your favorite part. I know a lot of people who want nothing to do with what's called the Old Testament in the Bible, want nothing to do with church, want nothing to do with any of that, but Jesus Jesus sounds awesome, and Jesus is, and we got to talk about Jesus. So if you haven't read the Bible very much, and you're confused by it, let me explain. We just went through this chunk, and now there's this little sliver right here. You'll notice it's not a big part of the Bible. It's called the Gospels, Uh, and let me tell you why, because originally that word would mean good tidings good news and that's it just if someone ever said the gospel it was good tidings good news that sounds neat but the early church connected it to Jesus and would say it's the gospel meaning that's the good news about Jesus specifically this part you'll hear it called oftentimes four books but you're like but that's one book I'm confused I know it's how we try to confuse people Uh, this this part here written by either eyewitnesses or people who interviewed eyewitnesses of Jesus. If you've ever wondered, like, the part about Jesus, like, who actually wrote that stuff? And can we trust them? Yeah. Eyewitnesses or people who interviewed the eyewitnesses. The gospel. It talks about Jesus. It talks about Jesus in a way that I, I, hope, I hope you're going to dive into this because I want us to wrestle with Jesus. I want us to go after this, and so here's what I want to do. I want to highlight what this part of the Bible says about Jesus. Let me go to just some of them, not even all of them at all. He will be very great, 
and will be called the Son of the Most High. This is told to Mary. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. He will reign over Israel forever. Remember that. I'll go back to that later. He will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. I mean, this is spoken to his mom. It's a big deal. Let me take you to a place you most likely have at least seen on a sign in a football game. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. This is like one of the verses, if, if, if your kids are ever in our kids' ministry or in any church any, anywhere across the world, uh, they're probably going to memorize this verse early on. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is talking about Jesus. I know many of you know that, but you, you need to get to this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him, talking about Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned. I mean, that's intense. Uh, already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son, Jesus. Guess what? No one wrote that about you or me ever, okay? That's a big deal. That's a big claim. If you ever want to know why did Jesus get killed well things like that <laughs> but that's not even the most extreme of it if you don't know this in fact i'll let me take you to something that jesus said well about himself uh, i am the way the truth and the life and then here's the kicker no one can come to the father except through me in other words no matter what you believe you're it's, that's your right you can have your own opinions no one goes to God, no one goes to heaven if it's anywhere else other than Jesus. Just for a second, would you stay here? We live in a time now that says there are multiple ways to God. There are multiple ways to heaven. But Jesus said this about himself. Leads a question. What do you believe about Jesus? Don't, don't answer out loud. What do you believe about Jesus? If you want to know the subject line of this whole sermon is what do you believe, not what does the person next to you or so-and-so, what do you believe about Jesus? Because we come to this in the Bible, if our goal is to actually understand it, if our goal is to actually live a fulfilling life, you have to go on to the topic of Jesus. And I just read to you some pretty extreme stuff. If you don't know what Jesus taught, he flat out said, you and I can only get to God through him. There are no other paths. I don't know how else to say this. <laughs> Meanwhile, many of us wrestle with this because when I ask you, what do you believe about Jesus? We're like, well, I don't even know because I, you might struggle with the supernatural stuff. It seems like a good fit for a movie, but, but not real life. This idea that, there seems to be stuff that human beings can't do, but Jesus did, and this idea that I need a savior, and so many of us just like, it's kind of uncomfortable, and we just do nothing with it. Or there's others of us, we don't pick up this question of what do we believe about Jesus, what do I believe about Jesus, because in theory, if you decide to go after the topic of Jesus, that could totally change your life. So for some of us, it's like, I'll deal with that on another day. There is a massive group of people, listen closely, a massive group of people 
who have decided that Jesus is just a good guy, good moral teacher. I don't know if you're in that group. Um, A former agnostic said this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. Here's the foolish thing they say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, which is an interesting word picture, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Here, it was worth showing you the rest of this. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut Christ up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him his being a great human teacher, he has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. Whoa. C.S. Lewis. Very true words. I do not know what you believe about Jesus, but it's a question worth asking. Because what you believe about Jesus has everything to do with your life and your eternity. Uh, the disciples, the original ones, if you don't know, I mean, you, I, I read earlier that the idea of him coming and kind of leading the government, taking over the government, like ruling like a king would rule. So many of the disciples were like, I know why they like Jesus, because Jesus was here to fix the government. Some of you, that's your prayer right now. God, fix the government. And we think the government is our answer. We think if the government was on par with what it should be doing, that our problems would be good. Well, that was what the disciples originally thought too. Don't feel bad. As soon as Jesus started doing like major miracles, walking on water, raising a guy back to life, taking a little meal and basically making thousands upon thousands of people able to eat. And I mean, when he began doing this stuff, you're like, we don't, this, is, this is amazing. This is supernatural. They begin to click things in. They're like, we cannot wait for you to take over the government because they were oppressed. They were overly taxed and cheated all the time. And sometimes in our small thinking, we think that our major problem is the problem that we see right now. Right? If you ever have a bad day and you have a problem arise, it makes your world a little smaller. You begin to be like, oh, wow, this is my one and only thing. And some the disciples wrestled with it. I don't know what you think Jesus came to do. Maybe to start a religion. Maybe to be nice to people. Maybe to show us how to treat other people. Huh? He said why he came. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who were lost. And it gets real heavy in this part of the Bible. So heavy, so heavy that many of us get very divided on this conversation with Jesus. Because there's a ton of people who have claimed the title Christian, Christ, follower of Jesus. 
We've claimed it because we're like, if he is who he says he is, well, I want to be a part of that. But we've been taking bits and pieces of what he came to do. To seek and save the lost. Let me, let me break this down a little bit. The lost. People who don't know where to go. He came to seek and save a rescue mission. This is flat out a rescue mission. When Jesus, he didn't come back to be some nice guy. He came back as a, as a revolutionary. A guy who came, he changed everything. And he took this, this battle on at a place you're very familiar, known as the cross. This, uh, this torture device, this execution tool i know you and i were like no that no that's a tattoo david or that's a that that's, goes on a greeting card right and nowadays our version of the cross is a little different than it used to be but may you may you never lose sight of the fact that this is where jesus took on your battle and mine he came to rescue you and i from our sins you and I have screwed up multiple times. My guess is you're like me that you have screw-ups that you've not publicly shared with a ton of people because you're like, mm, that's, I'm just me and God. The things that are super serious, the things that bring us some uncomfort at times where we're like, man, the, I don't know if God likes me because I did such and such. Every, whatever you've ever done in the past, whatever you've done even in this moment that you've processed, you're like, oh, that's not good. Just any of that. Jesus came to take that on, to resolve that on the cross. Jesus the, was, as the Bible's already told us, the son of man, our savior. He came and died. Can you imagine showing up to something and your only purpose there was to die? Here's why the cross is synonymous with the sacrifice table. Now, if you're new to the Bible or anything, you're like, we just went way intense. I mean, have you ever wondered that why Jesus Came to earth, that's one thing, but why did he have to die? That seems like a good like, uh, story maybe, but, but what's the meaning behind this? We had to die to cover your sins and mine, to pay that price. Oftentimes in church, we'll talk about blood as though it's normal, which is weird to those who are not a part of church. And we're like, they talk about blood a lot and death and sacrifice. No, thank you. <laughs> it's time we understand the meaning behind it. Jesus was born as a baby, as we all know. We will celebrate in the coming months. He ends up at a cross, a sacrifice table. And since the beginning of time and the original sin, when, when Adam and Eve first sinned, sacrifices have been absolutely necessary to cover sins. Let me, let me take you back. We've already been here in the series, but... The, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. We've already addressed this, but, but if you haven't been a part of this series, it's worth bringing back up. When Adam and Eve sinned, when they screwed up, I know you and I have a tendency to say, everyone's messed up before, it's no big deal. That's not how sin works. For a moment, just process. We are all against people doing wrong things. And there is, needs to be some sort of a fix for it, an atonement, some sort of justice for it. Some of us don't think <clears throat> death is the necessary thing, but God says it is. If anyone's ever wronged you, most of us are like, well, there's got to be some price that you have to pay. 
Anytime anyone does anything wrong, there's like, well, there's got to be some, some sort of punishment. Well, the punishment for sin is death. That's the only way blood actually has to be shed for in the eyes of God for that sin to be covered. And from the beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, God killed an animal. That's where he got the skin, by the way. And since that moment, sacrifice has been absolutely necessary. Then we get to Jesus. He walks on water, heals people, preaches the best sermons ever preached, does amazing things, but ends up dead execution style. Here's what happened. Jesus became the permanent substitute for our sins. If he hadn't arrived, um, not to get too graphic with you, but uh, every time you and I would come to church, we probably would need to bring a, a bird or a, or a goat or something. And it would be my job, which I'm glad this is over, to help sacrifice that animal so that your sins could be forgiven. And that would be on repeat over and over and over again. But you and I have not lived in that era. What we know is Jesus. Jesus became the permanent substitute. When you open up your Bible and you read this section known as the Gospels, the life of Jesus, he was not just some nice guy teaching us good ways to live. He came for a rescue mission, you and I. Something was, uh, was written about him way before he showed up. Hundreds of years, actually. But he was pierced for our rebellion. I wonder if you're willing to put yourself into that. Crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. If you've been around our church for very often, you know I love to tell jokes, especially if it requires sarcasm. I love to make you laugh, and I love to open up the Bible. I am being intense on purpose. I fear that the church has lost its intensity about Jesus. Jesus is real. He died. And sometimes we just need to dwell on that to let that tension and that truth somehow make its way into our souls. I don't know what your life has been like recently, but I do know it's worth your time to take brief moments and dwell on Jesus and what you believe about Jesus. And many times we forget, don't we? The details, what's going on, and we need reminders. We need reminders. I have lots of experiences that I try to grab trinkets from to remind me. Uh, if you've been around the church a while now, you also know that, that I help lead trips to Israel. And every time I go to Israel, I get stuff to remind me of certain moments. Uh, this is one of them. It's a, by the way, 
if this is illegal in any way, we need to scratch this from the video at some point, uh, someday down the road. Uh, if you go to the Dead Sea in Israel, uh, you'll eventually be stepping in this mud and floating and step on a rock. And if you're like me, you grab the rock and pull the rock up and you're like, what in the world? Uh, still, to this day, covered in the salt from the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the Dead Sea because the Dead Sea doesn't flow out. Water just flows into it. doesn't flow out. What a good life lesson, huh? That if you and I don't give, if you and I don't give, we become the Dead Sea. At least our soul does. So I kept one. You can go to the riverbed where David would have gathered five stones as he was about to take on a giant, Goliath. You go to the riverbed, it's dried up, but if you go to the riverbed, you see it and there's rocks, and if you're like me, you're like, I'm kind of leading this. No. You're allowed to take rocks for those of you who are worried if I'm a thief, but um, I, have, I have multiple uh, multiples of these rocks. These are from that riverbed, and I don't know if you've ever had a, had a week or a season where you felt like you're taking on giants nonstop and you need something to remind you that you can defeat that giant if a kid like David can defeat the giant under the power of God. So I have things like this. One of my favorites, uh, when we take people to the tomb where Jesus was put into the tomb, it's surrounded by a garden that's been well-preserved. We take groups there and um, we'll have communion together as a group. And uh, I always keep the cup that we drink from because it's a powerful moment to see an empty tomb knowing my Savior, he ain't in there. Communion, I think, is one of the most powerful reminders we have. In fact, communion forces you and I, whether you like it or not, forces you and I to answer what do we believe about Jesus. Unfortunately, communion over the years has been miscommunicated and misunderstood. And the intentions of communion oftentimes fall in our lives where we're like, what is this all about? And many of us think, am I allowed to to even do communion because am I a member of this or that? Have I been perfect recently? And uh, no, no, how does communion work? What is it all about? And I wanted to spend time there because I want you and I wrestling with what do you believe about Jesus? So I'll take you if you've ever wondered this whole communion thing that churches do on some do it more regularly than others. What's it all about? Hmm. Let's go there. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. That was normal, by the way, for them to have bread. I know some of us are on low-carb diets, and we're like, ooh. But that was very normal. In fact, to them, actually, bread wasn't just like a food. Bread represented life to them. It was a symbol. It was a food, yes. Food, yes. Symbol also. So as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and he, and he blessed it. Then he broke it into pieces. He didn't cut it, by the way. On purpose, culturally, you didn't cut bread. That was too harsh. He broke it. Never miss the details in the Bible. Then he broke it into pieces and he gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. And this is where we get weirded out, don't we? Come on. 
This is where some of us are like, yep, that's where you lose me. And sometimes people teach, and it's not true, that Jesus was being literal. Again, Jewish culture, in this sense, they're not being literal. He broke the bread, this symbol of life, and he says, this is my body. This represents my body. It's broken for you. Now, there's some things that break down, by the way. Some of us get literal, right? So you're like, oh, uh, that means when he was when he was crucified, they broke his body. Normal, when you were put on a cross and crucified, at the end, when they wanted you to die, they broke your legs. I know it sounds graphic. Some of you are like, I don't want my kids to hear this. I'm just telling you, that's what they did. They would break your legs, and that would guarantee that you would die quickly. They didn't break Jesus's legs. In fact, they didn't break any of his bones. So then you have a problem there too. Not only did Jesus say, my body's gonna be broken, you're like, wait, it appears as though his body wasn't broken. Oh, it's deeper than that. So when we have communion together, there's bread. It's been broken. And it represents the body of Jesus. What's the body of Jesus? What did, well, well, we can read, go further into the New Testament. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, in other words, we have confidence to access God by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened, opened for us through the curtain that is his body. The curtain, the body, the same thing. If you don't know the details of this, here I'll quickly tell you. If their, their version of church, uh, in the temple, there was a giant curtain. You couldn't go past it. If you did, you died. Because on the other side, there was the representation of God, God's presence there. So if you went there, you died. So there was a curtain that protected everybody, and you couldn't go through it. That curtain represented the body of Jesus. The reason this is a big deal, the reason I tell you all of this, the reason we are nerding out at epic levels right now, because we don't read the Bible in this church and make believe like we know what it's saying. We talk about what it's saying, and if we're confused, we ask questions. And Jesus shouted out again on the cross and he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Know this, in this moment, when Jesus died on the cross, what represented a barrier between us and God was torn in half, symbolically saying we have access to God. Go all the way back to the conversation Jesus with his disciples. He broke bread, passed it. This represents my body. This represents the broken curtain that had yet to be ripped yet. It's a powerful moment. You have access to God. Many of us right now are like, of course I do. I understand, I understand. But you need to know for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years, People didn't know Jesus or the idea of Jesus, and so they lived in this idea that they could never access God. They had to go through a prophet or a priest or a king. And so when you take communion, perhaps they concern you, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he actually gives us access? But you know that's not all of communion. And he took a cup of wine, and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it. 
for this is my blood. Again, not being literal, it's representative. This is how their culture functioned. Which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Jesus is having this meal. He breaks bread going, you are about to have access that you have never had access. But you can't just walk in because you're still the problem. You and I are imperfect, full of sin, going, how's that get dealt with? Because as soon as I access them, I die. So Jesus died. A very gruesome death, by the way. Very gruesome. And so for a long, long, long time, under the direction of Jesus himself, the global church has gathered together, not just in church services, but in their homes. Nowadays, even at restaurants. And we eat together, allowing the bread and the wine, bread and the juice to represent we can't save ourselves, but Jesus did. So let me reword the question I've been asking you and just simply say what you believe about Jesus matters. It, it matters to me, but more importantly, it matters to you. I know it does. And whatever you've done with Jesus up to this point, you're going to have to wrestle with something because you got to do something with them. And it's not about what you necessarily believe and have an opinion of. you got to take a guy who said he's the only way. That's why I shared with you C.S. Lewis's words. Either he was evil. Anyone claiming to lead people like he led people. Do you get in that? It's what you and I nowadays, sometimes we'll, we'll see a cult leader and be like, that's evil. Either Either Jesus was a cult leader or he's our savior or he's absolutely necessary for you and I to access God to spend eternity in paradise. What you believe about Jesus matters. So here in a moment, we're going we're gonna to participate in communion. So let me just unpack some things for us that are necessary. Some of us grew up in traditions where it was like, I don't know if I'm allowed to. I don't know if I've fulfilled certain things. And I, I can tell you what the Bible says. <laughs> the Bible says, if you believe that Jesus died for you, saved you, that he is the Savior, your Savior, then you can participate in communion. It also gives another thing to deal with, that if you and I have been living in sin, if you and I have been at odds even with others, that we should deal with that before we participate in communion. So before we participate in communion, I think it's, well, imperative that we do that. So here's what I'd like us to do. Would you, would you, would you bow your heads and close your eyes just for you to be able to focus? Because there's... There's different ones of us in different places in this moment where some of us have been following Jesus as our Savior for quite some time, yet there are things that we need to confess to Him, to share with Him, things that we've allowed to get in, involved in our relationship with Him that have put us at odds with Him. And so I want you to deal with that. Maybe that's you. 
Others, others of us have never actually begun a relationship with him. And I want to give you, while well, focus time, eyes closed, heads bowed, that perhaps you want to actually begin a relationship with this Jesus. Maybe you've been indifferent about him, and no longer do you want to be indifferent. Get off the fence. If you've never decided to follow Jesus, you're like, I don't even know how to start that. Let me give you words to pray right now. You just privately, he knows your thoughts, but pray this to God. God, I'm sorry for all my sins, and I believe now that Jesus is real. That Jesus is who he said he is. That Jesus died for me. That he came back to life for me. He was not just the moral teacher. He is my savior. And I accept that. I believe that. Fill my life, God. Fill my soul with you. And lead me forever. God, I pray for our whole church in these moments. What we believe about Jesus... God, we do this because of what we believe about Jesus. He saved us. He loves us. God, thank you for this time. May you bless it. But Lord, may you be glorified in it. We worship you and acknowledge that you sent your one and only son for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.